every startup has black days. There's no question about it. And the question to a leader is, what do you do with that black day? You kind of stay calm. You look for opportunity. Uh, you get people to focus on light at the end of the tunnel instead of the darkness in the tunnel. You don't sit and suffer. You act. You do something yeah. about it. That's the voice of Mark Leslie, now a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. In the 90s, Mark co-founded Veritas Systems, which grew from nothing to 6,000 employees and $1.5 billion in revenue in a decade. Mark is one of the foremost go-to-market experts in the history of Silicon Valley, and in this interview of two parts, you're about to see why. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's go time with Mark Leslie. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. In the world of Silicon Valley, Mark Leslie is a legend, especially among those who know who's worth listening to. When he agreed to come on the show, I was excited about the chance to expose his thinking to lots more founders throughout the world. And he certainly did not disappoint. And as I spent time with him, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to put all the insights into one interview and one lesson. So this is the first two-part Starting Greatness interview split between two episodes, along with two lessons of greatness as well. I hope people like the approach we took here and benefit from two of Mark's frameworks that I consider essential. Let's talk to him. Mark Leslie, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. You've been in the tech industry for a while. How did you arrive at doing startups in the first place and in the tech industry? I got into the tech industry. Um, my first job out of college was working for IBM. I graduated college at the height of the Vietnam War, and everybody was concerned about um, draft deferments. And actually, right out of school, I got myself a license to teach um, because that was a draft deferred occupation at the time. Um, but before I could actually get into teaching, I was in a motorcycle accident, and uh, <laughs> that kept me deferred for two years. And wow. as soon as I knew I was going to be deferred for a while, with my I had a cast on from you know toe to crotch. Uh, I actually went and interviewed at IBM, walked in at 1 o'clock, walked out at 4.30 with a job. And the job was called systems engineer, and I didn't know what they did, but I thought it sounded cool. Yep. And I thought computers were cool. And, uh, you know, my parents weren't college educated, so this was a whole new world for me. Uh, and it was, and that was a, the very, very early days in, in tech, right? I mean, IBM was the only people that trained you. You didn't, couldn't get a computer science degree because they didn't have departments because they didn't have computers. Yeah. And I, I suppose back then, for all practical purposes, IBM was the computer industry, right? You had what was called the bunch, I think, you know, these other little computer companies and then digital equipment was emerging. But like, yeah, you had was... IBM and the seven dwarfs, they used to call it, and, or yeah. the bunch. And so then how did you how did you go from IBM to startups? Because a lot of a lot of people have not made that transition very well. Ah, so this is a good story. At the end of two years, I, I, after I was in SD, actually, IBM reassigned me to be an operating systems program. Uh, I was the architect of the first ever software hypervisor. 
um, in a little project that was up in up in White Plains, New York. It was some of the most advanced work that was being done at the time in operating systems. At the end of two years, uh, and IBM had promised me they were going to get my draft deferment based on the work I was doing for them. But the the political environment changed, and the government had cracked down on companies trying to get deferments. And, and basically, they offered to write a letter for me. When I read it, I said, I won't get a deferment with this. And coincidental with that, actually, the guy from the project that I had been working on had gone to a company called Scientific Data Systems. And he had given my name to the local office. And they called me and said, would you be interested in coming to interview? And I said, you have draft deferments. And they said, yes. I said, I'll be right over. <laughs> <laughs> and I, went, I did. And I dropped what I was doing. And I went to interview the all in Manhattan across town. Uh, and they offered me a job. So I go to work for this company called Scientific Data Systems. They were building timesharing computers. They were the supplier of a GE Timeshare, which is a big company, among others. And um, when I was there for six months, I kind of clicked up my head and I said, you know, um, this company is like uh, got a thousand employees. They're doing a hundred million dollars of revenue. This is in, you know, 1969, 70. And uh, they are um, on the New York Stock Exchange and they're like a super hot company and they're nine years old. I said, if they're nine years old, that means 10 years ago, some guy woke up in the morning and said, I'm going to go start a computer company. Yeah. I said, I, I didn't know you could do that. His name was Max Polesky. He was very famous in his day. Well, if he could do it, I could do it. And then I said, that's what I want to do. So okay. I was 23. And I said, what I want to do with my career, my business life, is found, build, and run an important computer company in the industry, public, scale, etc. So I knew okay. that when I was 23. And that was so important to me because all of the decisions I made in the future, the career decisions I made, was never about is job A, B, or C better. It was about is job A, B, or C better to get me to my goal. So then you you, you were you were at the scientific data systems for a while. Right. When when did you decide to kind of strike out on your own and do a startup? Uh, well, there's another intervening uh, 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 company. So I was okay. at uh, SDS uh, for four years. You know they were trying to expand. They were actually had been acquired by Xerox. They were packing the sales force. Uh, I was in a region with 16 salespeople where only two people actually made their goal because, you know, there was just, just not enough people to sell to and everything like that. So I was pretty discouraged. And uh, I started looking around and I discovered this, this uh, mini computer industry. Huh? And it was brand new. Uh, this is in 1972. Uh, and, um, you know, I kind of I found like eight companies and I talked to like most of them and I got offers from most of them, and uh, I ended up going to Data General. And Data General at that time was a $30 million company, so it was very, very young. Yep. It was very, very hot. It was absolutely on a streak at that time. This was the North Star, right? I went there because I said, this is the place where it's small enough and young enough that I can learn what it takes to actually create a company mm -hmm. in the computer business. What You know, you got you to know about me manufacturing, you got to know about engineering, you got to know about sales, marketing. And to yeah. me, that was the place where I could go to school. Now, they were kind enough to send me to HBS right at toward the end of my, my stay there. And I said, well, I can't turn that down, right? Uh, so I went off to the long-form executive program at HBS, and, which was great because I needed to learn about accounting and finance and operations. 
And that was the academic part of it. It was, it was fabulous for me. I was, couldn't, couldn't learn fast enough. And uh, that was finishing school. They send you there before they, you know, kind of promote you one more time to some new interesting thing. Uh, but I basically, at that point in time, uh, decided to move on. Uh, found a, a technical partner uh, and just started to work on building a business plan. Um, I get asked about this a lot of times by my students, like, when, do you, when are you willing to take the risk to go start a company, right? And, I, and, and they all say, well, I'm, you know, I'm single, so I can do it now. But I said, well, I was married. I had a mortgage, two children. I had car payments. I had a wife who was not working. She was raising the children and you know, take, taking care of the home front. And I went to her and I said, we have about a year of money in the bank. And um, I'd like to go start a company. I don't know how long it's going to take. And I'd like to quit my job. And um, before we exhaust our reserves, if I haven't been successful doing that, I'll go back to work in another company. Are you okay with that? <laughs> how did that go? It went fine. She, you know, she had total confidence in me. And we built a business plan. We were talking to potential investors. And I resigned. And probably we probably got raise the first round probably within 60 days of, of that resignation. It, it was, so it really wasn't, it ended up not being risky. And this was uh, Synapse then? That's correct. Uh, Synapse Computer, very, very, very exciting company in 1980. We ended up raising um, over four years, we ended up raising $35 million. We were, you know, when we started raising money, they were probably, you know, 40 venture firms with 40 to 50 million apiece was the world, the entire world of venture capital. Yeah. I was a, I was a local celebrity at the time, you know, getting interviewed and, you know, stuff like that. Pretty heady experience. I was, you know, in my early 30s, 34, 35, something like that. We were building a online transaction processing of computer with multiple processors and the ability to kind of remove and add processors on the fly while you're doing transactions. It was a pretty, pretty sexy company. We had probably 95% of what any customer needed, but the last 5% was different for every customer. So as you go into the market, every time you meet a new customer that you can go do a deal with, and these were like, you know, half a million dollar systems, uh, it's like, oh, well, we've got to have this thing or that thing. And that was like a big development project for the company. And it wasn't replicable because the next customer you went to had something else, right? And, and you know, one of, one of the insights, one of the lessons I took away is when people say, well, we've got this product and it does such and such. I said, as you go around and talk to customers, do they want the same thing or do they want something different? Because that, that's a very serious issue. Yeah. It was one of the real fundamental problems that we had in the business. One of the things I learned that was profound for me was that Data Channel was an extremely successful company in the, in the 70s. They were a rock star. Mm -hmm. And when you come out of that environment, you kind of look at the management style and say, well, these guys are really smart. They built this incredible company. I'm going to do what they're doing, except a few things I don't like. And then mm -hmm. I'll go change those things. After I left that and, you know, got into other situations, I looked back and I said, that was a very, very bad decision. That company actually had a very dysfunctional management style, but they had such a great product market fit at the right time in the right place and such a demand for what they were doing that it carried them through even with all the, the dysfunction inside the company. In data general, if you were a founder, you were sacrosanct. 
Nobody could talk back to you. You could never get fired. You were totally untouchable. And they were, some of them were pretty dysfunctional, right? So when I was in my, this first company, Synapse, it turns out that the guy who was running engineering was a very smart guy, but he was dysfunctional and he was a terrible, but I couldn't fire him because of this thing in my head that said, you never fire a founder. You know, later on in life, as I kind of uh, emerged with my own view, no one sank or sank. You know, everybody pulling on the oar to make everything go in the same direction. And to the extent that something's not working like that, you go fix it or change it. And I, I didn't know that. Were there any other key lessons or kind of mistakes that you look back on and that, that uh, informed how you ran companies in the future? So I got fired after four years because of the last round of fundraising was very stressful. And, but I said to myself, I said, you know, look, I said, when something doesn't work, there's blame to go around everywhere. You can blame the partners, you can blame the, the employees, you can blame the investors, you can blame the, there's plenty of blame to go around. And I said to myself, I said, look, this is a terrible experience, but I'm going to be better and not bitter. Yeah. So I'm not going to spend any time thinking about what other people could have, would have, should have done. I'm going to only spend time saying, well, how, what did I learn from this and how can I be better? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I attribute this, that moment in time, thinking about that, uh, to how I was able to become, that Veritas wasn't only successful, but I was very successful as a CEO and as a leader. Yeah. And I, and I was able to, and I attribute that to that learning experience that I had at that time. So it was, all, it was all good, right, in that sense. Yeah. And so then what was, um, you know, kind of what was the sequence of events between Synapse and Veritas then? So, you know, now you're, you're an unemployed former CEO. Like, what, what, what did you do after that? I ended up uh, taking on a role to do a turnaround of a military computer company called Rugged Digital. Okay. And um, when I joined the company, I was the fourth CEO in two years. They were getting ready to close out a $2 million a year and a $15 million plan. Uh, the, the idea of the company was a good idea. It was basically saying military computers have been built in the past by licensing an instruction set from DEC or Data General, and then re-implementing that with mil-spec chip, chips in a mil-spec package, which took years of design and implementation. So we basically, in that company, took a VAC 750, which was a frontline you know, computer, took all the electronics out of it, built a new package that met all the military requirements. And we were able to sell it for about two times market of a, about twice the price of a, of a VAC machine. Uh, and so that was, it was a good idea. It was an idea whose time had come. And, you know, these guys had seen it, but they just couldn't get out of their own way. So I was there for four years, went from, you know, 2 million to 32 million. Uh, we had contracts all over the place, uh, and uh, I decided that the business was commoditizing. That is, that what we were doing, there wasn't enough intellectual property in it, so anybody could do this stuff. So uh, I said we should sell the company. I hired a successor uh, who ended up selling the company, and I moved on. That's kind of what I did. And then I said, I'm going to write down what I want to do and what's important to me. And I wrote, and I made a list. And I said, the first thing on the list was, uh, in terms of the product side, I said, I want to be in the computer business. I want to be in the software business. Software was emerging at that time, and it was an intrinsically better business, no inventory account, no product lifecycle disruptions, all those kinds of things. Uh, High gross margins, you know, infinitely high gross margins. So software business, 
data path. And then I said, you know, a data path is, you know, applications and operating systems and databases. And then I said, and my first love is actually operating systems. That's where I started out in life. And it's always been fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. But I had this kind of picture. And then I said, look, I don't know if this company, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go look for this company. I don't know if it will be successful, but I know that if I do this based on this, the work I want to do, that I will enjoy my work and I will feel fulfilled in the work. I ended up, uh, a company called Tolerant Systems tried to hire me. It was in the same business as Synapse, actually. They put on a campaign to try to hire me, and I ended up saying, this company is very risky. And they said, well, you know, you've got a lot of knowledge. Why don't you join the board? And I said, okay. So I did that. That was in, you know, probably 1988. Uh, Tolerant Systems was founded about the same time as Veritas. Uh, They raised $50 million. Uh, they had a company by the time I met them of 200 people. Uh, they were doing a fair amount of business, but they were still, you know, struggling. They said, we're going to lay off everybody in the company except this little tiny software group that's working on making Unix commercially ready. So they did that. They laid off, you know, uh, 190 or 200 people. And uh, the guy who was the president of this you know, the CEO of this old company was now the CEO of the new company. And um, I went over to the board members and I said, you know, I said, you guys try to hire me to run the prior company. And I said, I didn't want to do it and it was too risky and would require more investment. And we ended up here. I said, but actually, I'd be interested in running this new company that you have here. I don't know how the new CEO is doing, whatever, but just want to let you know. So they went and did a they went and did a little survey of the company and found out he wasn't doing anything. He was in his office building trading applications with the door closed. <laughs> the employees were very unhappy. Uh, so they called me up and said, let's go make a deal. So, you know, the, this guy calls me. He says, well, why don't we meet at my office on, you know, Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. So we do up on uh, Sand Hill Road. And uh, we sit down and, you know, we they said, what would it take for you to do this thing? And I kind of laid out all this stuff and we talked about it for a long time. At the end of the conversation, the guy says to me, well, I've been writing all this stuff down. Why don't we all sign it? <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of looked at him and I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I went on and I said, what did I do? I said, don't you think you're supposed to think about this stuff, right? Yep. So uh, I, I figured, you know, I had till Monday, because then we had a part of it was a plan, right? 4.30, they're going to fire the CEO. 5 o'clock, they're going to announce this to the employees. 5.30, they're going to you know, introduce me. And at 5.31, they're going to leave. Yep. So I had until 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday if I wanted to change my mind. So I you know, talked it over at home and said, no, I'm going to go do this thing. So why did I do Veritas? So Veritas was building a file system and a volume manager of IBM class. Actually, the guys doing it came out of Amdahl, which was an IBM clone company. The AT&T, they had right on the threshold of signing a deal with AT&T that said AT&T, who owned Unix and was licensing it to the world, would step back from developing these products, let Veritas develop them, or Tolerant Software at that time develop them, and bring it to market together. And they had this agreement that they had been conjuring up. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that and I said, the company doesn't have traction. I said, but this is a pretty special relationship that, you know, that exists with AT&T. So that um, relationship with AT&T was what put me, what gave me comfort. And the other thing that gave me comfort, and I think this is, I looked at the entire computer industry. IBM was still enjoying 
totalitarian hegemony. No piece of business press or 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 general business press or or business press either side, right? Either local or, or national, uh, would talk about anything in computers without getting a quote from IBM. I mean, that's how pervasive they were. So I looked at this computer world and I looked at this Unix stuff going on and I looked at the products we were building and I said the following, I said, I believe in the next 10 years that Unix is gonna is gonna supplant IBM as a mainstream computing facility in, a, in, in, in the computing industry. That was a very, very hard thing to believe at that point in time. Oh, yeah. And I said, Veritas has the products that can help all these companies do that. I said, we can build a small company, but we can build a company that's a good company, meaning we had very high IP value in what we were doing. What, the stuff that we owned was very valuable. And I said that someday we may be able to find an opportunity to leverage it. Uh, so we ended up changing the name of Veritas. And then, like the following week, the the uh, the engineers, they show up with these T-shirts. Uh, Veritas, we're not tolerant anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a lot of fun, and you know, it was great. And, uh, and we built a great company. I mean, it was a terrific business. We went public in 1993. Uh, we had four quarters of profitability on $10 million of revenue, which is unheard of today, right? Yeah. And um, we uh, we raised $16 million of new money on a $64 million pre-money, on a $64 million post-money valuation of the company. I call yeah. it a nano IPO. Yeah. But to me, 16 million, I mean, the company had raised a total of $4 million, including wow. the restructuring that we did, which was just a cleanup thing, right? So to me, having $16 million in the banks was like an infinite amount of money. Did you have any near-death experiences at Veritas? Or did, did you know did the AT&T partnership kind of put enough wind in your sails to like make the viability fairly certain? And then it was just a question of how well, big? The near-death experience was uh, when we, uh, uh, the first quarter after we went public, um, and our quarter one, you know, we were on our sawtooth like everybody. Our quarter one was probably, I don't know, a $2 million, $2.5 million quarter. And one of the contracts we had, you know, kind of knew we were going to take the revenue was a, was a development contract that we had done for $350,000. And uh, I'm off on a Friday with uh, family up in, uh, you know, up in the wine country. And uh, I get this phone call. I call in for my messages. We didn't have, you know, email and stuff at that time. I'm, and smartphones. I call them for my messages. I get this message that says, you know, this is a uh, mentor graphics canceled the contract. I'm uh, sorry, Sequin canceled the contract. Mm -hmm. This is we had a contract with Sequin. They canceled this contract. And I'm sitting there saying, we can't make the quarter. It's our first quarter as a public company, and <laughs> it's going to blow up. It's a catastrophe, right? And I and so the rest of the day I'm with family, and they're all talking to each other, and. Uh, and I'm living in a silent movie because I don't know what, anything that's going on around me. I'm just like got this rock in my stomach and I'm spinning in my head on this whole thing. And I keep calling in for more messages to see if there's any good news, which there wasn't, of course. So I come in Monday. Uh, everybody's looking at me. We sit down for our staff meeting. And, uh, and I said, we deserve to get canceled. We did a terrible job on this. We deserve this. So we ought to go figure out how not to do this again, but we shouldn't do it today because we really don't want to focus on fixing the blame. Let's take a hiatus of a month 
and then visit it a little more objectively and kind of figure out what we need to do as a company to be better. Does anybody have any ideas or anything we can do to fix this problem? And they're all looking at me like nobody has an idea. And I said, I have an idea. So my idea is we go ask Sequin for $100,000. And then they look at me like, this guy's lost his mind, right? <laughs> they just canceled the contract. I said, look, I said, there are three reasons why we can, we can give them. I said, first, projects that fail have two parents, not one. There's guilt on their side for sure. And I'm sure they know it. Point number two, we plead for mercy. We're a brand new public company. You're a big successful company. This is going to be terrible for us. We give them this, you know, huge sob story. On our knees, we plead for mercy. And third, we offer to give them a full release. Full release. Okay. No, nice. no. You, you give us hundred thousand. We go away. You never hear about this thing again. Okay. So there's one of the one of the vice presidents in the room. He owns this account. I said, Rich. I said, you think you could go go pitch this? He said, Yeah. I said, You don't have to stay at the rest of the meeting. Go to the airport, get on an airplane, go up to, uh, to Oregon, and let me know what happened. Let us know what's happening. And then I said, well, anybody else got any ideas? So the sales guy says, well, we got this deal we're working on in England for 250K. Maybe if we offered them a, uh, a sweetener to do it early, they might do it. I said, who owns the deal? He said, well, it's a sales guy named Peter Levine. Know that name? Oh, yeah. I know him well. <laughs> so Peter Levine is a young salesman at that time. And it's his day in the office, and he walks in, and then I said, get Peter in the office. He walks in in t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops, right? And I said, Peter, you know what's going on, right? He says, yeah. I said, so we're thinking if we go to ICL and offer him 175K on a 250K deal, do it today, that would be interesting. What do you think? He says, I think that would work. I said, get in your car, go to the airport. We'll have a ticket waiting for you. <laughs> this is a great story. So he gets in the car, he drives to the airport. While he's driving to the airport, he, he calls his, his buddy in England at ICL and says, I'm coming to do a deal. And he said, and I, I have no clothes, no toiletries, and no place to live. Can you help me out? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes to, and he, and he gets on the airplane with his passport and his, what he's wearing. And when he gets to the other side, they stop him at, at uh, Immigration and Customs because they don't believe him. They, they think there's something nefarious going on, right? It's, you don't travel like that with no baggage, right? He's got his briefcase with him. So that was a black day. That was a terrible experience. And I learned something very important. If I was in the office, I couldn't have been thoughtful about it. I would have been reactive. Because mm -hmm. I had the weekend, I was able to think about it. And I said, I said, this uh, dark day is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to do something together that we think is impossible. This is an opportunity to, to find binding for the team, to bind us together because we overcame adversity together. Yeah. And, uh, and this is an opportunity to, to you know, kind of become better as a company, to be able to, because we can then believe in ourselves, right? And I didn't have that, I wouldn't have had that insight if I didn't have that, that weekend to think it over. Mm -hmm. And uh, that stayed with me forever, that, that insight. Yeah, and it's interesting as well, because almost all the great startups I've seen, particularly in B2B, there's some moment where the universe says no. You know, you're going to miss sure, the corner, deal's not going to happen. Every startup has black days, there's no question about it. Yeah. And the question to a leader is, what do you do with that black day? 
Exactly. And, you know, what you do is you kind of stay calm, you look for opportunity, uh, you get people to focus on, on, the, on, on the light at the end of the tunnel instead of the darkness in the tunnel. You don't sit and suffer, you act, you do something yeah. about it. And so when you, when you left Veritas then, what was the market cap of Veritas? Well, so uh, we went public at a $64 million and we peaked at the, at the, the top of the bubble at $64 billion. Wow. A thousand wow. times. So uh, when I left, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I left. I left. It was right at the peak of the bubble, actually. So it was, that was probably what it was. But uh, probably within a year, it probably gone down to like twenty, twenty billion, twenty-five billion, or something. Like that. It was a very valuable company. We were yeah. very yeah. profitable. We were very cash flow positive. You know, we, we were just we were generating at that time like four hundred million dollars a year of cash, cash. Just oh yeah, cash. yeah. It was amazing. Where were you in sort of your academic endeavors when the idea of the sales learning curve came up? And how did that, how did that come about? So I started wow. teaching and we're teaching these entrepreneurial cases about young companies. And, um, you know, my experience in the real world is that like uh, the, the, the standard pattern that I see is that some company, this is, this is back, you know, 20 years ago, right? The standard pattern is somebody starts a company. They go build their product, they go do a beta test, they go GA, and when they go GA, they hire like 10 salespeople, right? And they say, okay, we're ready. And, and you know, easily 60%, if not 80% of them fail in that first year. And at the end yeah. of the year, they have this catastrophe. So I see this in my experience, and I'm teaching all these classes, and I say, well, how do we teach about this, right? And then I had, this is truly, this is like, you know, like in the comic books where you see a lightning bolt, I had this epiphany. I said, the problem is, is that when they think it's ready, there's a whole bunch of other things they haven't thought about outside of engineering a product uh, having to do with the readiness, which I kind of, you know, enumerate in the sales learning curve, which is, is it the right price? Is it the right market? Is it, you know, how does it fit competitively? Uh, is it feature rich? Is it you know? Is there a long tail associated with the with the use of this? Probably there's a million things to think about, right? And what I recognized at that point, because I had a you know kind of a a good understanding of the manufacturing learning curve and how it works in the semiconductor industry, is this is the, the the manufacturing learning curve is to manufacturing what the sales learning curve is to go to market, right? So that's that was the epiphany, and then. Okay. Um, I said that was a little part of the story. So I go to my mentor at, at uh, Stanford, the guy who I co-wrote the paper with. I said, I have this idea. I said, and I and I and I and I don't know if it's a new idea, but if it is, well, you know, we could, we could write a paper about this. And I and I describe this idea to him, and he has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I'm not. I wasn't that articulate about it at that time. It was just like this, you know, kind of idea. So we kind of do this four times, you know, and then we do a literature search, and we come back and say. You know, nobody's ever kind of come up with this idea, and it was it was so um, internally rewarding to say, "This is a new idea that the world has not seen, and we can write about." It. I mean, that idea of kind of making an intellectual contribution to the craft, in a sense, was very moving to me personally. Very personally rewarding. I got a lot of, you know, a lot of psychic reward out of that whole thing. So we wrote this paper, and of course, he's an academic guy, and. It made me rewrite it 32 times. I swear, <laughs> it was just terrible, you know, because they do these, they perfect these things before they publish them. And I was like, hey, it's good enough, you know. Anyway, we got it published, and then I went and evangelized it. And so, so let's talk a little bit about the manufacturing learning curve first. It's probably a lot are in software 
Like what, what, what did you know about manufacturing learning curves in the first place? And then how do we connect the dots between that and then startups and the sales learning curve? Yeah. So, so the manufacturing learning curve, glad you asked. So it does, it does kind of uh, help here. So my kind of introduction, the manufacturing learning curve was really in the semiconductor industry. Not that I'm in that industry, but um. You know, every every all of us are children of Fairchilds. You know, at some point or another, right? Yeah. Um, so we all kind of know about that stuff. And and the way the the way the the semiconductor industry works, and this is true of, of, of much more true of process manufacturing than discrete manufacturing. The way the way that works is uh, they come out with a process, and it's a very flawed and very you know unsophisticated process. And over time, they they tweak and change and modify the process and, and as they do that yields go up and as yield goes up uh, cost comes down and the thing that's fascinating about the semiconductor industry is that this manufacturing lear- learning curve is so embedded in the in the psyche of the industry that when Intel comes out with a new part serial number one may cost them ten thousand dollars per unit yep. But in order to go down the manufacturing learning curve, they need volume. So they go price this at $10 and they lose money. They lose, you know, $9,990 on the first unit. And they keep selling them at $10 in order to drive the volume. And as they drive the volume, the process gets better, the yields get better. And eventually they're able to produce these things for a dollar. And that's then, and so if you look at the manufacturing learning curve, they lose money until they get to the break-even point. And all the money is made in the long tail when they have a high volume and a large market. And they can't get to that high volume and large market unless they have the right price. So they have to go to And the thing about the, the semiconductor industry that's fascinating is that it's true, even though, you know, every time they make a change to a new product, they have to start over. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't like they, they bring all the old knowledge with them, but there's new knowledge that has to be learned in the in the process for this new part or this new process or whatever it is. And the the semiconductor industry doesn't even think about it anymore. It's just like that's the way the sun comes up in the morning. We all do it the same way, and we're not going to be able to get the prices down, the yields up until we do this. So so that's the manufacturing learning curve. So manufacturing the summary of the manufacturing learning curve is as volume increases, cost decreases. Maybe for our listeners, it would be useful to just talk about each of the three phases, you know, initiation, transition, and execution. So um, why don't we start with the initiation phase and just what characterizes that and how do you know when you're in it and how do you know when you're ready to progress past it? Yeah, so the initiation phase is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the land of mysteries. Uh, it's when you're, when you're, you, you get, I recommend three salesmen so you have, you know, if all three of them are successful, that's a data point. And if all three of them are not successful, that's a data point. But if you have another mix, at least you have two and one, and you can kind of say maybe one's an outlier, right? Either success right. or failure. Um, so, so I always recommend to to not hire many people, but to hire at least three. Uh, and I recommend that it's a different sales um, person that you hire, which I call a renaissance salesperson, someone who not only knows uh, how to you know, qualify a customer and, you know, make an argument for closing, but someone who really understands can, can, uh, can go out to uh, uh, understand the technology, can talk to engineering. Um, I, I often um, in, in conversation liken it to, you know, 
the military, where this is you know Delta Force, right? Uh, they're resourceful. They're specially talented people. They're unique, um, and they are the people you need to go get a beachhead. However, if you really want to go to war, you need the infantry, which is you know the, the last phase, right? These are the you have to be able to take people who are competent but not exceptional and have an environment where they can be successful on their own. So that's kind of the first stage and the last stage. And the the, the transitional stage really has to do with uh, measuring how you're doing on the sales learning curve relative to your cost of the salesperson. So you have a fully loaded cost, which is salesperson, his compensation, and his, uh, his, his uh, incentive compensation, the systems engineer, and then the proportional cost of his manager and all the overhead costs that go. Then we say, this guy today, I'd say that number is, you know, 800000 order of magnitude, $800,000 for an enterprise sales rep. Then the question is, is when is this person going to sell, you know, individually $800,000 worth of contribution margin, meaning, you know, net of, you know, uh, of cost of goods? When is he going to get $800,000 of contribution market? And that's the point of break even. We haven't made a we haven't made a dime yet. All we've done is pay for that salesperson, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, so that's what you want. And once you get past that, that's when you can start hiring in earnest. Once you get to, in this case, a million of contribution, a million two in contribution. But up until that point in time, you have to be very thoughtful about doing it because the cost of it, as we all know, the cost of going to market with an enterprise sales force is unbelievably expensive. Crazy high, crazy huge. Yeah. yeah. And so I suppose that where some companies then get in trouble is they they misinterpret demand for their customers demand from their customers as progress down the sales learning curve so they say hey let's go this is a land grab let's go hire a bunch of salespeople but the salespeople are not yet trained or not yet the, the company actually is not yet trained to provision a salesperson to succeed at that and point. that stupidity is fueled by too much money and so then, so, okay, so that you've got the initiation phase and you're trying to get to revenue per rep equals their fully loaded cost. Um, and you want the sort of the Renaissance type of salesperson. Yeah. I mean, the Renaissance guy is someone you start the company with and, you know, if you're a successful company, they won't be there. They're going to be on to the next, you know, the next campaign someplace. Right. And then, the, then the transition phase you sort of get to this traction point. So how do you how do you think about the transition phase, and then what are the exit criteria for that to get into the execution phase? Well, so I recommend that people you know uh, do two things. I recommend that they say, even though we don't know what we're going to learn, we have a suspicion about what we're going to learn. So why don't we write all that stuff down and start understanding you know how they look, right? Um, you know, a simple like. You know, one of the things we what we ought to learn is do we have the right features? You know, we used to have an expression called shelfware, right? And the question was, is great to sell to the high level, but do the people actually use it? So let's let's put that down as one of the things we need to learn about is how people are using it and what do they experience, what are they missing, right? And there's 50 of those that you can put down. Uh, so that kind of informs you in terms of you know the uh, the, the 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 agenda of, of the things you need to think about. And some of them you say, yeah, they were fine. And some of them you say, yeah, we've got a lot of learning over here. And the other thing you do is you actually track the yield. You actually look at, you know, uh, you, you create a, an artificial cohort. You say, let's assume every person was hired on exactly the same day. Look at their productivity, month one, quarter one, quarter two, year one, et cetera. And let's just look at how that 
that goes up. And as we do that, we can then understand, you know, do we have traction for can we get a salesperson to a function, you know, to a to a level of productivity that at least extinguishes their marginal contribution. Okay. And then I suppose that in the execution phase, you now have your revenue per rep is now at or greater than equal to their desired quota. And so now you can effectively hire at will as long as you can hire people who can achieve that. So so that's the time when you hire the, you know, the the Oracle salesman and the EMC salesman who requires, you know, uh, uh, you know, sales support and lead generation and product definition and competitive analysis requires all that stuff. And if you give them all that stuff and you give them reasonable quotas, they'll be successful. But if you put them, if you take one of those guys and drop them into a, to a Renaissance sales slot, they'll fail. And and then you'll get false, you know, you get for false information back from that. Yeah. So you need, uh, I suppose, uh, marching band types, right? They they, but you got to give them sheet music and dance steps, right? Or they will. Well, yeah. I go back to the military. You need the infantry. The infantry uh, is yeah. run by process. It's run by systems. It's run by procedure. It's run by management structure. Uh, and you get, you know, the great unwashed to be successful soldiers, in spite yeah. of themselves, in a sense, right? And that's what that, a big sales force is. Is you know is is a, is a sales factory. It's run by process and 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 by operations and by systems and procedures. It's not run by inspiration. It's inspiration too, but that's not the way you run it. So the sales learning curve. I remember when I first read it, the idea just immediately resonated with me because I've you know like you, I've been involved with some startups where we got some early success with customers liking it. But we didn't really yet know how to sell it. We had a we had a false positive from the customer feedback, right? And so we ramped sales too fast, not knowing what it took to sell. And uh, and when I read this sales learning curve article, and let me see if I interpret it right here, I, I read the article and I, and I was like, oh my gosh, there 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 are different phases to building out a sales force because you you escalate your commitments as you escalate your certainty about what it takes to sell this. So I had this great experience, when I, this not a great experience, but an interesting experience. I told you I went and evangelized this. I went and presented it to, like, if your firm had a CEO conference, I would say, hey, I'd be like, you know, I'd like to speak. And they were always looking for someone to say something, right? Um, so I went and evangelized this, as I said, over five, you know, over two years to about 5,000 people. And the, the, the reaction, I, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a, as a speaker, I read my audience, right? I'm an experienced CEO. I've made lots of presentations, lots of people. I look at faces and I look at, you know, reactions in the audience while I'm talking. And I'm presenting this sales learning curve. It's very interesting. Um, and I keep looking at the audience, certainly in the early days, and it's like there's no reaction, right? There's like there's just, and they're just, and I keep, and I keep looking to see what's going on and everything like that. And afterwards, people come over and say, that was amazing. This was a snap into all my experience, which is kind of like what you said, right? This, this resonates. This like puts a framework around the, the, the things I experienced and lets me think about it in a new way. It, it was great. I mean, I, I remember reading it and, you know, every now and then you'll, um, you probably encountered this, you read something and like a whole bunch of seemingly disconnected thoughts all of a sudden come together. And now all of a sudden you can locate exactly where you are in a situation. And, and at first it seemed like you didn't have a compass, right? But now all of a sudden you're just like, oh, that's what's happening here. That's what unifies what's happening here. That's right. That's exactly. And, 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 and today I, I, 
I meet people who I've never met before. And, you know, it comes up in conversation. And they say, oh, you're that guy that wrote that paper. Because a lot of people now have read that paper besides the people I originally evangelized it to. I gave out copies of it at the time, of course, you know. But, um, you know, now it's like it's uh, part, of the, part of the landscape. And I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that uh, the, the, the change that I have seen in the venture capital industry is at, at the uh, A round where we have a product that's kind of getting ready to go GA. That the expectation of sales in the first year that's laid onto these companies is different than it used to be. It used to be go out and do ten million dollars. Now it's like go out and figure out actually what the model is, right? And yeah. I, I'm very, and that's a that's been a profound change in the in the industry. It was a very cool experience for me. Yeah, well, I really appreciate your taking the time, Mark, and I'll uh, I'll follow up on a, another recording. Sorry that I'm putting you through the the ringer here on two of them, but I I think. No, I think I told you when we started. I mean, I said, if you want to do a second one, that's fine, because it, the way you said you wanted to talk about it, I said it's just more material yeah. than fits into one. So happy to do more. So let me know. Okay, thanks so much. Okay. Great talking to you. You bet. You want okay, fun. thanks. thanks. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Starting Greatness podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you're new to the show, I hope you listen to our past interviews with legendary founders like Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, the Instagram founders, and Keith Raboy. I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at M2JR and subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and events at greatness.substack.com. Until we catch up again, I hope you'll never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. Thank you for listening.